Welcome to the QI chat room. I'm your host, Kelly Bond. This podcast is brought to you by Redwood Community Health Coalition, or RCHC for short. We're a network of community health centers and a wellness education site throughout Marin, Napa, Sonoma, and Yolo counties. We formed in 1994 with a mission of improving access to and the quality of care provided for underserved and uninsured people. This podcast is all about quality improvement, or QI, in healthcare. We'll bring you speakers from our member health centers, outside health centers, county and federal agencies, healthcare plans, and more. Those speakers will discuss promising practices they've identified at health centers, the latest data on specific health topics, and engage in conversation with our live audience. We've been hosting these chat rooms since late 2018 and transitioned to the podcast format in the fall of 2019 to reach a greater range of listeners. We hope you'll join us as we share the latest in quality improvement with you. Today, we're bringing you the first episode in a series of COVID-19-focused sessions. Our goal is to share information with health centers that can help make this challenging time a little bit easier. Today, we have RCHC's Health Information Technology Project Manager, Jennifer Inden. She brings years of experience working in a health center and at RCHC has become our resident expert on telehealth. In our current state, telehealth is the primary way health centers can continue to care for their high-risk populations. If you're finding it challenging to keep up with the ever-changing rules and regulations around telehealth, you're not alone. Throughout the episode, I'll be asking Jennifer a series of questions to help clarify telehealth changes to date. She'll provide some helpful tips around documentation and more. The first question I asked Jennifer was for some clarification around the COVID timeline. Here she is to walk us through a brief overview. I'll just start kind of at the beginning. Uh, So on January 31, the Secretary of HHS, Uh, HHS, which is the Health and Human Services at the federal level, declared a public health emergency. Then on March 4th, California declared a state of emergency. On March 6th, just a couple days after that, Congress passed um, one of the first Coronavirus Supplemental Appropriations Act, which included monies for telehealth and also gave the HHS secretary the authority to waive or modify the Medicare telehealth requirements, which is a big deal. Right, I should also note that my timeline doesn't include everything. I'm just really kind of just scratching the surface to give us framework uh, around telehealth. So after Congress passed that that first Appropriations Act Um, on March 7th, the Office of Civil Rights, or the OCR, publicly noted flexibilities around HIPAA compliancy for, uh, for telehealth products or tools allowing the use of popular non-public facing applications such as Apple um, FaceTime or Facebook video chat, Skype, et cetera. And the purpose of that was to allow the least amount of barriers between patients and their healthcare providers. On March 17th, CMS, so Medicare, released initial guidance on telehealth during the COVID national emergency, but still left a lot of gray areas. So they were really great in uh, in having an initial response, but essentially their initial response was, 
we're working on it. Here's some stuff to get you going. That's really what that first one was. Then on March 16th, California Department of Healthcare Services or DHCS, uh, they submitted along with a lot of other states, uh, what is called a 1135 waiver, which is essentially a request to CMS to waive some telehealth as well as other stuff. Um, uh, regulations or really giving states the flexibility in providing uh, telehealth to patients. DHCS also released their first billing and reimbursement guidance for Medi-Cal uh, on the 16th. Then on March 23rd, CMS approved some of the 1135 waiver requests, but was still working on the specific requests around telehealth and telephone flexibility. On March 27th, Congress passed the CARES Act, which was the biggest appropriations act and the one that has uh, gotten uh, the, most, uh, the most media attention. And really how that impacts us is it further expanded access to telehealth with additional monies for HRSA grant programs, which is a lot of our health centers, as well as to the FCC, all with the goal of advancing telehealth. One of the most important aspects is the change in language of previous legislation um, to require evidence-based care projects to assess the impact of telehealth on access to care. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but essentially it gave the HHS secretary the ability to look at existing regulations and, and help make the call uh, on evidence-based care and what that is looking like and monies that are funding those projects. On the 31st of March, CMS did a blanket approval for states for 1135 waivers, which included the additional flexibilities, including telehealth. So they finally said, we can't manage all of the different blank, uh, waivers coming in and managing them one by one. And so basically what we're going to do is we're going to do a blanket approval covering pretty much almost everything that the states are asking for. On April 2nd, Partnership Health Plan released their updated and final reimbursement billing guidance for partnership patients, um, which also around that time, uh, Beacon for Behavioral Health through Partnership also released their guidance. Also on the 2nd, FCC rolled out their $200 million COVID telehealth program, which uh, put funds up for grabs. Uh, including FQHCs and rurals and tribals to help providers and health centers purchase telehealth equipment as well as pay for services. So recognizing that, hey, patients can't come in to see their providers and we're loosening these regulations. Now we need to back it up with money that would enable them to actually make that happen for their sites or for their offices. Then the most recent development dated on the 17th and posted this past Monday on the 20th, CMS finalized their telehealth billing and reimbursement guidance for FQHCs. So that was a lot of stuff that happened in essentially a really short amount of time, um, even though it seems like it's been dragging on forever. So what does all of that mean? What has changed from pre-COVID to now? So really the the biggest change and the biggest win really is the ability of FQHCs and, um, and rural health centers and tribals um, and their patients to utilize telehealth for primary care and behavioral health services, no matter where they're located. That is really the biggest takeaway from this. 
Previous um, to the national health emergency, the provider and the patient had to meet really specific and narrow criteria in order to get reimbursed for telehealth. So one of the issues, overall issues with implementation or adoption of telehealth widely was that we providers couldn't bill for it, really, for most of it. Um, and so if there's no money coming in to help pay for the, the program, it's not sustainable. So because of the loosening of the regulations and because of the Appropriation Acts, there are now funds available to help purchase equipment and to pay for services to bring telehealth to their patients and get reimbursed for it. And really the, the equipment and that reimbursement, that revenue stream coming in, those were both huge barriers to implementing any sort of sustainable telehealth program prior to the emergency. The question on a lot of minds is what can health centers bill for? Yeah, so that is really one of the hardest things um, that has been um, to track, really. The regulation changes have been coming fast and furious, and especially here in California, we have a whole other layer um, on top of any sort of federal guidelines. So really, we have some stable and final information from pretty much all of the big payers, CMS, Medi-Cal, Partnership, um, some of the commercial payers as well. And so I'll really um, put the, the services provided, telehealth services provided into four major buckets. So the first is synchronous, which is what most people uh, think and picture when they were talking about telehealth. It's real-time audio feed between the provider and the patient, much like what we're doing right now. Asynchronous, which is also known as store and forward, where the patient uploads answers to a questionnaire, or maybe it's a free text, it's a message to the provider, um, and then maybe possibly a photo, and that's then forwarded, sent to the provider to make a clinical decision at a later time, right? So it's not real time. I'll message my provider, maybe through the patient portal or through, through a product. The provider will get that um, maybe a couple minutes later, and they'll look at that and make some sort of decision and then get back to the patient. That's your asynchronous. Then we also have telephonic, um, which is an audio-only visit that meets the conditions of a face-to-face -face visit criteria. And that's a really important piece. Then we have kind of these other check-ins or a telephone check-in, which is usually a quick five to 10 minute conversation between the patient and the provider. That's an audio um, only. Or it could potentially also be, uh, be video, but it's a, a very small, short amount of time. For Medicare patients, what we're able to bill for is synchronous. So real-time audio video feed between provider and patient and get a $92 reimbursement. Any telephonic um, visits, whether they meet the face-to-face -face criteria or not, need to be billed underneath a G-code and are eligible for a $25 reimbursement. Under Medicare, they have also stated that providers and patients can have a patient portal-based conversation um, over a period of seven days that is at least five minutes long collectively, um, and that can also be billed underneath that G-code for a $25 reimbursement. For Medi-Cal and Partnership, however, they've been a bit more generous. So whether it is synchronous, asynchronous, or telephonic visits, as long as it meets the same conditions of a face-to-face -face visit, they'll get full PPS reimbursement. So, which is great 
the largest bucket of our patients are partnership and Medi-Cal. Um, but it is a big blow uh, to especially our most rural health centers who have Medicare patients who don't have a laptop or a smartphone and they are providing those face, to, um, essentially those phone visits that meet the face-to-face -face criteria, but they're not able to get reimbursed um, a higher amount. And so this is where our advocacy will come into play a little bit later. Commercial payers, although they will each specifically dictate their own billing policies, California has come out with two directives in the last couple of, of weeks. And essentially what they're stating is that those commercial payers, those health plans have to reimburse providers at the same rate as an in-person visit if it was provided via telehealth. And whether that is um, synchronous, so audio video, or if it's a telephonic visit. Um, so essentially, a commercial pair cannot say, oh, even though you did everything you would normally do in a face-to-face -face visit, because you did it over telehealth, we're going to pay you less. The state said, uh-uh, you can't do that. The state also state, um, stipulated that commercial payers cannot exclude coverage for services just because they were provided via telehealth. So if underneath that commercial payer and that patient's a health plan, that particular service would be covered in a face-to-face -face visit. And if those same conditions are met in a, a telehealth visit, that the commercial payer has to pay for it. They have to cover it. They can't say no. Once you understand what you can bill for regarding telehealth, next you need to understand how do you document it. So here's Jen with some tips for documentation. All right, so documentation is really, really important right now. Um, and this was one of the biggest, um, next to what, how we should actually bill and what are we gonna get reimbursed. This was the next biggest piece to the puzzle that we were missing for quite a long time. Um, providers, of course, our recommendation is always to document at the highest level of services provided, whether they are doing it over the phone or synchronously or using an asynchronous tool or over the patient portal, whatever it is, they should document to the highest level possible, pretty much as they would in a face-to-face -face visit. But there are a few additional things that they should also include in their notes. The top one is circumstances involved that prevents an in-person visit such as our statewide stay-at-home order, or if it's unsafe for the patient to come into the clinic, right? Even if that's like your, your first choice, this is something that we really should probably do in person, um, that it's really not safe for the patient to, to come into the clinic. That the video visit or that the telephonic visit takes place of the face-to-face -face visit. It's also really important to stick that in there. Uh, of course, that the service is medically necessary and clinically appropriate to be provided via telehealth. And we are also recommending to note how much time was spent with the patient. And although the payers, CMS, Partnership Medi-Cal Commercial Payers, may not necessarily be stipulating that that is a requirement, based upon conversations that, uh, that we're having with our providers here in RCHC, as well as across the nation, really, having that documented will help frame the visit in case of an audit of that, that chart note. Um, and so all of those pieces are really important. Now, what does that actually look like for a provider? It can look very differently. Some providers um, naturally chart some of this stuff and just how they're filling out their progress note. Others may need to specifically uh, 
put in a sentence saying that we determined that this is medically necessary and clinically appropriate, right? So it really depends upon the provider and the organization on exactly what that chart note will look like. The other piece that's important to take into consideration is consent. Not just consent to treat, which also should be documented someplace within the EHR, but consent for telehealth. California, a couple weeks ago, waived the requirement to obtain specific telehealth consent from the patient. So previously, the provider would need to specifically ask the patient, we are doing this over telehealth, um, right? We're doing this over video, we're doing this over the phone. Are you okay with that? Do you consent to receive the services this way? And the patient needed to answer yes or no, and the provider needed to document that. So California came out and said, you don't need to do that anymore. But just until the last couple of days, it was not the same um, for CMS. CMS just released that they are no longer requiring specific consent for their synchronous telehealth visits, right? So their audio video visits, but they still require it for any services billed underneath that G code. So any of those patient portal or those uh, brief check-ins with the patients over the telephone that we're billing that G code for, uh, CMS is still requiring that the provider uh, or somebody underneath the provider's authority receive um, and document that consent to, uh, to get those services. Ultimately, as RCHC, we're really recommending that each organization determine what they will require their providers um, of their providers for documentation. Uh, and taking a couple of things into consideration, what are, what's an acceptable audit risk level for you, uh, right? Are you on the radar for an audit? How, how much of a chance do you think that somebody's, uh, that CMS is gonna come back and look at those charts? Also, what type of services are mainly being provided? If your, if your site, uh, or organization is doing a lot of those G-code type of services where they're required, maybe it might just be easier to have everybody throw that consent in. Or perhaps all of the providers have just finished being trained and are finally getting in the groove of adding in a consent template or adding in that consent information into their progress notes, um, and you don't want to have to go through the trouble of telling them that they don't have to do it anymore, that's okay too. So it's really up to each individual organization to determine what their expectation is of documentation as far as consent goes for telehealth services. So hopefully by now you understand a little bit better the elements of billing and documenting, but now we wanted to know what kind of tools are health centers currently using around telehealth? There's a lot of them. Really in the first couple of weeks, none of us knew how much time we would have to get a telehealth platform up and running right? We, we had no idea. Um, so a lot of the health centers were making decisions really quickly and what I'm calling a, doing a steamroll implementation. They, they picked something and they just, they pushed it out, right? And we're just taking, uh, they were taking the, the easiest route and getting something out there. Now we've had a few weeks with a little bit of breathing room where we're realizing that we can move out of that uh, reactionary mode and into more of a response, more of a thoughtful or mindful response, but we're still kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop. So uh, in the first few weeks, a lot of health centers, uh, because of the need for a quick stand-up, uh, it meant finding something easy for staff and patients to use 
and low cost or even free. Uh, Doxy.me and Zoom um, were large choices and are still uh, popular and are in use. Several uh, health centers decided to uh, try to utilize their EMRs built-in telehealth module, like ECW's module or NextGen's auto, but they found that there were barriers around how patients access the telehealth sec uh, sessions, uh, primarily is that the patients needed to be in their patient portal, which added a whole other barrier um, on top of just trying to get the patient onto that digital session with that provider. Um, and some of those barriers have been remedied by an EMR provider. And now that uh, the health centers have a little bit of room to breathe, um, they're able to, to support a much more robust rollout of these types of tools. A few of our health centers have also started or will be starting uh, with Luma Health, uh, which has been a great patient engagement tool for those sites. Uh, and Luma moved into the telehealth realm due to the demand and because they had the capability really underneath the, nat um, the national emergency. One of the biggest challenges is that there are so many options out there of both known vendors and also brand new vendors who are being opportunistic and, and forging their way into telehealth, even if it maybe wasn't in their plan initially, um, but because they're saying, hey, we have this capability, we can go ahead and we'll do it, let's give it a try. Ultimately, what we're seeing is a lot of the health centers are doing what we call pick it and stick it. So they're choosing one, or maybe two platforms and utilizing those across the organization, even if it's really tempting to try out a brand new tool, right? As they're popping up all the time. A lot of the IT and the EMR folks, because they are also working uh, from home, they don't have capacity to continually support new solutions. And so they're trying to find one or two that work and are easy to use. And they're just, they're gonna use that. They're, they're just calling it. Um, but it's also being mindful of staff uh, providers who are just trying to get in contact with their patient and trying to see their patients, they also don't have capacity to try to troubleshoot and learn new products every week. But on the other hand, what we're seeing is a lot of providers are meeting their patients wherever they are. If a patient can't figure out Zoom or NextGen's Auto or ECW's telehealth module, but maybe they have an iPhone and the provider does too or an iPad, the provider will just FaceTime them. If they don't have a smartphone, patient doesn't have a smartphone, they'll do an audio visit with the patient. Really the important piece here is that all of the patients and the providers feel supported and that they are able to make that connection with each other. That's really the number one priority. A piece of the, the telehealth puzzle that is yet to be solved is around document management. How are organizations getting signatures from patients or how are providers signing documents that the patients need and then getting those documents back to the patients? We don't really have a great solution right now. Several of our health centers uh, in the coalition are piloting several different tools and are trying different things out. Um, and so hopefully in the next uh, coming weeks, we will we'll have a little bit more information about some, uh, some solid tools, as well as at the coalition level, I'll be digging more into these tools and, uh, and putting out a, a matrice for health centers to, to use and try out. And we can see how that goes. Okay, so once you have your tool that you want to use, what is your workflow going to look like? Jen's got some recommendations for that too. Yeah, I have a few. Um, really, I think the, the number one 
recommendation is to let your patients know that telehealth is an option. Put something up on your webpage. Work it into any recall messages that you might be doing. Uh, if you're utilizing some sort of mass communication tool, text messaging, email, portal, whatever that is, put it into there. Let them know that telehealth is available. There are patients right now that are feeling the need to be connected with their provider, whether for a medical reason or maybe they had something that they were supposed to follow up on, but they're kind of stuck in limbo. They don't know that they can get in touch with their provider and through telehealth, they can. Providers can continue to see their patients and patients can continue to be supported by their providers. So that's like the number one thing that I think that I would recommend. Uh, the next piece would be to create clear workflow documents for all users. What does it look like? Who is calling the patient prior to the appointment? Who, uh, who is getting the patient the information to get logged into their, to their session? All of that is really, really important. And step-by-step -step guides are incredibly helpful, including screenshots. To work in tandem with those workflows, create scripts for users whether it is the call center or whether it's an MA or the nurse or the provider, whoever it is that is talking with the patient, create a script for them to use during the patient communication, such as giving them step-by-step -step instructions that they can explain then to the patient on downloading the app that they're gonna to use to get connected to their provider. Is somebody going to call them prior to the appointment to update the timing, or maybe they're the ones who are gonna facilitate that provider-patient connection? What is it that they should say to the patient, right? Everybody is in this, this new world because we haven't been able to implement this on a mass scale before. So nobody is really quite comfortable with it yet. So if you can develop very clear scripts that that MA or that nurse or that front office can read off to the patient, they are very quickly gonna get comfortable with it, as is the patient, as well as make sure that you're checking all those boxes, making sure that these things are happening before that televisit happens. My other recommendation that a lot of um, sites are now starting to do is that anything that an MA or a nurse or whatever your workflow is, um, that somebody would normally do when rooming the patient, maybe a PHQ-9 or maybe um, some other sort of SDOH survey or any sort of questionnaire that they might um, give to the patient at that time, have them do that prior to the appointment. Do it during the confirmation call or have it set up in the morning. Think of it similar to um, like a pre-op call, right? Prior to going in for any sort of surgery, you get a call from the pre-op nurse usually the day before and they're going to go through this checklist of questions. Um, I think that it would be uh, a much easier handoff from patient to provider uh, and the would help um, ease any sort of concerns from the patient that, yeah, you know what, we are kind of business as usual. It might be in a little bit of a different order, but it's business as usual and we're going to continue to take care of you. So my last question for Jen was what kind of trends is she seeing in the telehealth world? Right, so that is kind of a loaded question. We could talk about trends all day, trends in the technology realm, uh, trends in the regulation realm, uh, but I think that that is really uh, probably what I want to focus on on more is uh, what 
what are we doing at the coalition um, in the telehealth realm and how is it going to impact you? Really right now, my favorite metaphor for the trend for telehealth is that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Somebody mentioned that to me on a conference call last week, and I think that that fits this perfectly. Prior to the pandemic, the FQHC telehealth um, was, in, was in the tube. Uh, and now with the loosening regulations and the funding available, we have squeezed that tube and that toothpaste is out and we are using it, right? If you talk to anybody that um, working in the safety net five years ago, we could have all said essentially the same thing. Telehealth is a great option for getting patients connected to their care team. It reduces barriers to care. It's going to decrease no-show rates. I think a lot of us knew that. The policymakers, however, had not caught up. And so now they're being forced to uh, because of necessity. So, so what are we doing about that? So underneath uh, our CHC, underneath our Health Center Controlled Network HRSA grant, we are pivoting slightly to be able to utilize um, our conditions and, and our focus on health information technology to focus on primary care telehealth patient home monitoring devices, uh, as well as uh, care team configuration changes, operational changes. What does that look like now if we're delivering care via telehealth? How does that change what it looks like in the clinic for the patient and how care teams operate? And we're gonna look at all of this and we wanna collect all of the data that we possibly can. So data and use cases with the legislative language change in the CARES Act regarding evidence-based care delivered via telehealth, our goal is to take that data and use cases to the policymakers to show the efficacy and the, uh, the increased health outcomes in hope of re-loosening the regulations around telehealth. Telehealth advocacy will become increasingly important um, probably over the next year. We don't want that toothpaste back in the tube right? We don't want it. What it's going to look like immediately right after the pandemic, the emergency declaration is over, um, we're not 100% sure. That, and that's up for debate uh, for a lot of the telehealth resource centers that are scattered across the nation. A lot of them are anticipating that um, these loosening regulations will be, be cut off, right? They're just going to take the pair of scissors and then go, okay, you're done now. But then that's where our advocacy comes in. And we're going to take all of this information and say, look, look at what we did during this time. Not only were we struggling with stay-at-home orders and remote working and all of these other things, but during all of those challenges, we were still able to get A1Cs under control. We were still able to complete um, our phase workups on our patients. And and they had better outcomes. We did that all through telehealth. And, uh, and that, in turn, will um, re-loosen the regulations so that we can move forward in a sustainable manner with a mixture of in-person and telehealth visits that really helps break down those barriers between the provider and the patient and getting them to the office. So that's, I think, what we're hopefully seeing and I think that we're probably only going to see uh, more telehealth products come out onto the market over the next year or so, and as well as the push to make these products better. 
Some of them are really basic and others, you know, are really quite fancy, but they don't do what we need them to do in the health center. And so we, I, I anticipate that, uh, that because of the increased use, they're going to have a lot of feedback and they're going to make these tools much better, especially uh, in the FQHC rural uh, tribal world. A big thank you to today's presenters, participants, and our listeners. I'm your host, Kelly Bond, and we'll see you next time in the QI chat room. Thank you.